Acts chapter 13. I encourage you to bring a Bible to church. If you need a Bible, we have some blue Bibles for you. We project it on the screen to assist you, but there's nothing like getting your own Bible out, getting familiar with it, knowing what pages are where and so forth. So I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible if you're able. We're in Acts 13. And it is great to be here this Sunday. Um, I was away last Sunday at our sister church, Crossway, uh, speaking there. And it was a wonderful time to be there and to, to speak, but uh, there's really no better place I'd rather be on a Sunday than with you guys. And, I, and uh, it's funny, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just a homebody. Um, I missed being here with you guys last week. And, and just as I thought about this morning, I was eagerly anticipating just being with you and and trusting God to minister through me, through his word. Also excited to jump back into the book of Acts. We took a little bit of a, a mini-series to look at the issue of New Testament prophecy, to understand that. And uh, those messages are available on the website, and I think at the back as well, if you missed that. But I'm glad to get back into the flow of the story here in Acts. This is really an amazing story. Uh, that we're going through as a church. Uh, the book of Acts is just uh, a wonderful, really epic story. And, um, and I, it's, it's fitting to call it a story because it is a story, and it's fitting to recognize that uh, that story is an important part of life, that God's story that starts in the very beginning, even before time began, and, and uh, goes onward through the, the Bible from Genesis on to Revelation is just an amazing epic story. There's something in humanity, I think because we're made in God's image, because he's put eternity in our hearts, that loves story. And I think that's why we see in culture uh, a constant creation of these stories with these conflicts and noble deeds and noble heroes and noble tasks and sacrifice and, and heroism and, and res- resolution of conflict and rescuing of people who are in danger, things like that. There's all sorts of stories that are out there, and they all interest us. We like to hear them. We like to read about them. We like to watch them on TV or the movies. We like to sing songs about them. But the ultimate epic story is a story in this book, and it's way better than any fairy tale or fiction story. It's an amazing story. It's, it's the story of God's eternal, glorious purposes worked through time as He pursues mankind fallen into sin, as He sends His Son, who is God in the flesh, and His Son fulfills Scripture and, and, and does everything that He called mankind to do. He fulfills and does, and then surprisingly and amazingly offers Himself up in the place of sinners on the cross to die in their place and to offer this great exchange to humanity, their sin for His righteousness. As we come to Him, His death pays for our sins and He gives to us His righteousness. He welcomes us in as brothers and sisters, members of the family, counted as righteous as He before the Father. We know this is true because on the third day He rose again. The Father said, yes, indeed, this is true. This is my Son. This is my Beloved One, and I receive what He's done. 
An amazing story. That's really that, that aspect of it. His death and resurrection is, is the apex of the story. But the story continues. It goes on. And it goes on into the book of Acts as this amazing story of Christ is carried by his people in the power of the Holy Spirit through the local church to many other places. As, this, as they witness to this truth, as it has its life and universe-changing way, it transforms people, it transforms community, transforms societies, all amidst opposition and persecution. It's really an epic story, and we're going to jump into it in Acts 13. And I want us to, to enjoy the story. I want us to see what's going on. I want us to appreciate it, but I also want us to find our place in the story because Acts 13 was the early church, but the story continues. Now, our part of the story is not written about in Scripture. It isn't Scripture itself, but it is part of the story. And the story continues until his return. Actually, it goes beyond that when he restores all things. So we are in the story as well. And he invites us to recognize that, to embrace our aspect, to find ourselves in the best part of the story as we come and receive Christ's sacrifice for our sins and embrace his resurrection power and lordship over our lives. So as we read this story today, I want us to enjoy it, but I also want us to understand how we fit in and what we can learn from this part of the story in Acts 13. So we're going to read, actually, the entire chapter. Um, Paul tells Timothy to not neglect the public reading of Scripture. It, It is profitable to read even an entire chapter or more. We'll read through it, but I want you to listen as we read through it. I want you to listen for what's going on in this story. This is a a, a dramatic turning point in some ways in the story. It's been happening since chapter 7, actually. But there's this shift from from the gospel going to just the Jews to the gospel going to Jews and Gentiles. And then even in this chapter, there's some kind of radical changes in how it goes to the Gentiles that are controversial, actually, and will not be resolved until chapter 15 as far as how we deal with how the church deals with those radical new methods. So we're going to see that happen. So listen for that. Listen for some changes in how they do evangelism, how they do, they're really, what they're doing is evangelism with the end, the goal of church planting. Listen to the changes in leadership that will take place in this chapter. Then listen for how God, the triune God, is at work. That's one theme we see in Acts, God at work. So we'll see the Holy Spirit doing things here, empowering the people, using God's people. We'll see them proclaiming Christ. So listen for how that story is given. And then we'll see the Father orchestrating all things. The Father over the continuation, guaranteeing the continuation and conclusion of the story. With that in mind, let's pray and ask God to give us insight as we prepare to read the Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this amazing story, Lord, and we thank You for the call to public reading of Scripture, and what you do in and through it, Lord. I pray you'd help me to read well for the sake of your people, for the sake of your name, and I pray you'd help me to serve them well as we exposit the truths here, as we learn from them. We thank you, God, for your word and your story, and that you work in and through it, that it's alive, and you have things you want to do in our lives today. So do them, Lord, do all that pleases you as we reflect on your word. Fill us with the Spirit right now as we listen, as I speak and preach. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace and your life. Come and do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 13, 
verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then... The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, 
And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him, up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 13. Another part of this amazing story we see in the book of Acts where God is doing incredible things, where the gospel is going forward in the power of the Spirit. So what I want to do is take the remainder of our time to, to look at what God is saying to us through Acts 13, what Luke was getting at and God through Luke getting at for us. What are the main lessons? So 
Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the new horizons that God has opened up here. Then we're going to take some time to think through some aspects of this part of the story and its application to us. Because, as I've said, this is the story, but we have our place in the story too. And there's aspects of this that we are to walk in as well. So we'll take some time to learn through that, um, God willing, uh, from these wonderful truths. Well, this chapter really is, uh, could be considered the second volume of the book of Acts. If you were to divide up Acts into volumes, perhaps, this chapter would probably begin the second volume. The first volume of the book of Acts has uh, largely been about the working of God through the church in Jerusalem and through the leaders there, like Peter and his delegate Barnabas. Barnabas is a transition figure in the story. But it's been largely about that. We've seen God work in the church in Jerusalem. We've seen wonderful things happen. And, and primarily the, the witnessing of the good news by God's people has been to Jewish people or Gentiles that have been influenced by the, the Jewish faith, by the Old Testament as well. Largely they've been going to synagogues and preaching Christ, teaching the, the truth about Christ in synagogues. And that's a great place to go. God's heart is for Israel. And also, as you go to these synagogues, uh, you meet people who have been trained in the Scriptures. Uh, so they may not be Jews, but they're Gentiles who have learned the Scriptures. They've been well prepared to hear the fulfillment of the Scriptures in Christ. This is largely what's been going on to this point. Really, up to this point, nobody has really gone after the Gentiles directly. Perhaps in Antioch to some degree. We know the story of Cornelius, but Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile, so he was involved with the local synagogue. So, so in, in going to reach him, the, he, he was a God-fearer, went around the synagogue. But no one had really gone, uh, at least in the story, we don't see anyone really going to Gentiles directly. That changes in this part of the story. As we follow along in the story, we can see that transition. Verse 5, when they come into, on, when they're going through this island, Cyprus, they, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So they start, they go to this island. Uh, it's where Barnabas is actually from, and Paul's from that general area. They go to the island and they go from one end, from the eastern end to the western end. And as they go through, they go to the synagogues and proclaim Christ in the synagogues. There probably are probably already believers there to some extent in Cyprus. We know that. Um, Barnabas was from Cyprus. And they target the synagogues. Then they, when they get to the far end of the island, though, they encounter something really totally different than anything they've seen. There's this guy, Sergius Paulus, who is probably not a God-fearing Gentile, probably is a full-blown Roman, uh, a, a, a pagan Roman, uh, probably schooled and trained in philosophy and so forth. Uh, we don't know much about the man, but he's most likely not a God-fearer. And he summons Paul and Barnabas to his court, most likely. Now, some of these things for us, we, we, I don't think we get. I don't get them necessarily the first time through. But for a Jew, that was something they didn't do. You didn't go to the house of, of a Gentile. You tried to avoid going to the Gentile places. They were considered unclean. Uh, and you didn't go that, go there. So here we have Paul and Barnabas going, being summoned to the, the court of or whatever it was, of Sergius Paulus, and they're interacting with this man. They're, uh, they're proclaiming, and there's this guy with them. There's this guy who is a Jewish man, but he's a, a magician. He's, he's compromised his faith. Uh, he's, he's, he's a magician very much like 
uh, or similar to Simon early on with the Samaritans. Similar situations, similar parallels. And he's trying to, trying to turn away Sergius Paulus from the faith. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine what that was like and, and the, what's going on? They're preaching Christ and, and trying to preach Christ. Sergius Paulus looks like he's interested. He's an intelligent man. He's, he's very interested. God is doing something in him, stirring him up. Uh, he, it says that basically he was fascinated with, astonished at this teaching. He's listening, but then there's this guy uh, um, on the side kind of whispering in his ear. It makes me think of the guy in Lord of the Rings. The uh, What's that guy? Worm something. I forget his name. What's his name? Worm tongue. Yeah. Worm tongue kind of whispering in the ear of the king uh, and trying to turn him from the ways. And then Paul steps up to the plate uh, and hits a home run at that point. Just amazing. In the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, it declares to him that he's, he's a villain and, uh, and calls, calls blindness on him. I mean, that's boldness. That's anointing. Uh, that's Paul. Paul's an unusual person. Paul is the one called, really, as the apostle to the Gentiles. He steps up. He hits a home run. And what happens is God uses that to bring Sergius Paulus to Christ. I mean, it's kind of f- funny. It's a kind of understatement. It says, after all this happened, it says, Sergius, and Sergius Paulus believed. Well, I mean, boy, it was just an amazing occurrence to watch your advisor start groping around, looking for someone to to lead him because he's been blinded by God. And he was astonished at the teaching, and he believed. Um, and that's something that happens, and Luke has that in the story for a purpose, because that starts to shift their strategy. Here was the first time in the story, at least, we see, where they're going directly to interact with the Gentile directly. And also we see something going on as well in the story. If you follow through, follow through the story. I'll, I'll guide you through this. In verse 2, if you have your Bibles, we can maybe put it up to jump around. Verse 2, it speaks of the team that was sent. And the Holy Spirit says, probably through uh, these prophet teacher leaders in the church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work. So who's set apart? What are their names? Barnabas and Saul. Now we're, look down to verse 7. Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul. So he summons Barnabas and Saul. That's the order of their name. Then verse 9, something happens. But Saul, that's been his name up to this point. But Saul, and then Luke says, but who was also called Paul. His name changes right here. And Paul is his Roman name. Saul is his Jewish name. And so Paul steps up to the plate. We know he hits a home run, but there's a shift that happens. Previously, Barnabas has been the senior guy. Paul has been, Saul has been following him. Now, Paul steps up and takes prominence so that later on in verse 13, as it names the team, instead of saying Barnabas and Saul and John Mark, perhaps I might mention, what does it say in verse 13? Now, Paul and his companions set sail for, from Paphos. There's a shift here going on. There's a shift in strategy a shift going to more aggressively, more directly reaching the Gentiles, and there's a shift in leadership from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and his companions. And, and it says, right, as it, right after it says that, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know why John left them. We don't know for sure, but fitting into the context, fitting into this transition, I would submit that John left them because he had a hard time with this idea of going directly to Gentiles. 
He had a hard time with the idea of Paul being in charge, Paul taking this lead, doing it this way. And so he left. And we'll see later on there's controversy in the church over this idea of directly reaching Gentiles, calling them to faith and forgiveness in Christ without going through the Mosaic Law, without going through the ways of of at least a God-fearer. A God-fearer was a Gentile who submitted to the law to an extent, not the whole way. Paul's bringing up something radical here, it looks like, where he's calling people to faith in Christ without really any submission to the law. There was a radical shift and most likely upset in John. There might have been other things too. And John leaves them. I think Luke has that for a purpose. And then we'll see as we go on in the story, chapter 14, even more radical in how he preaches to the Gentiles directly. We'll take time to look at that next week. And then chapter 15, we later we'll talk about how that conflict gets resolved. And then it describes, uh, there's some way that describes the team that, that, that is really amazing here. So the, the story, he preaches Christ, a wonderful story here. And then at the end, when, when the Jews reject him, he, he, they say blatantly, we're going to turn to the Gentiles now. And he says, I have, he quotes the scripture, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's from Isaiah 49, if I remember right. And that's a scripture that was written and attributed to, spoke of who? Which person was claimed to be the light for the Gentiles in the Gospels? Do you guys, anyone remember? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's the light for the Gentiles. A light for the Gentiles that they may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But the team, Paul and the team at this point, say, we are. The Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Paul's defining what he's about and what they're about with that scripture. That's, that's a bold assertion Paul for Paul to make. He's, he's attributing something that is attributed for Jesus to himself and his call. Now, he's not displacing Jesus at all here. I don't mean to say that. But he's saying, I'm called of God to bring this light to the Gentiles. I'm called by God under Jesus to bring this light to the Gentiles. He understands his mission as the apostle to the Gentiles is to bring light to the Gentiles, to to bring them to Christ, to shine the light in previously dark places. That is wonderful news that God has done this and he has used Paul to bring the light to the Gentiles. And we see the rest of the story is really God using Paul to bring this light to the Gentiles, using the team to bring the light of the truth of Christ to dark places. He understands himself that way. And what this story teaches us, not only how this transition takes place, because Luke had interest in helping the church, the early church, understand what was going on, to understand this whole thing that the gospel could go from Jewish people to the whole world. How did that happen? How is this legitimate faith for uh, for the Roman Empire, how, um, why would God do this? He's trying to explain those things, but also there's, there's something in it for us and for the church throughout the ages because Luke might have had that in mind. God certainly had that in mind, but God was over Luke. God was using Luke to write what, would, what is Scripture, God's very words, and God wants to speak to us through this story as well. And what we to learn, are to learn from this section of Scripture is that God is thoroughly 
committed. God is thoroughly committed to shining the light of the gospel on dark places. God is thoroughly committed to shining the light of the gospel in dark places in New Horizons. That's the title of the message. He wants to shine the light. He wants the light to break forth in dark places. He is committed. He has promised it in Isaiah 49. He's seen to it sovereignly that he would raise up Paul and Barnabas and use them. He has worked through their their circumstances and, and shaped and molded the church. And he has led them to a new evangelistic strategy and leadership in order for his heart, his heart desire to see the light go to dark places to occur. And this is really the beginning of it. This is the beginning of the light going to the Gentiles. And we as Gentiles mostly, uh, there might be some folks with Jewish heritage, that's wonderful, as Gentiles should rejoice like the Gentiles did in Antioch to know that God in His mercy now is turning to shine His light on us. You are here today as a Gentile because of this promise and because of God's heart. He has shown the light to you. He has shown the light to the Gentile world, and He's not done yet either. It's the nature of God. It's the heart of God to shine the light in dark places. And when God looks at us, when God looks at the greater Haverhill area, when God looks at the Merrimack Valley, He's still thinking that. He's still thinking Isaiah 49. He's still thinking, I want to shine the light in the darkness. And it's His heartbeat. And we need to hear it. Now, none of us are the Apostle Paul. None of us can attribute this verse to us in the same way. But as God's people who are continuing the story, we can understand this verse to be defining our mission, to shine the light in dark places. That's what a church is about. A church is about a people of God coming together being formed into the image of Christ, becoming more and more like Him, enjoying God, worshiping God, and as we do that, shining the light to those around us. Not just on Sundays when people come in, but in as the week as we're dispersed throughout the area, as we interact with people. It is God's heartbeat to shine the light in dark places. That is His plan to do it through the local church. That's what Paul does. Is he's planting local churches. And and elsewhere in Scripture, he says that he's preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. It's this huge geographical area. There's no way Paul could have preached the gospel to everyone in that whole region. But what he had done is planted churches throughout the whole region. And he knew that those churches would continue as they were built up in Christ to shine the light, to bring the gospel to dark places. So this commission, this, this understanding of self that Paul has must be our understanding of self as well. We are called. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. King of Grace Church, He's made you a light to the Gentiles. He's made you a light to the greater Haverhill area that you may bring salvation to this area and beyond as well. It is a prayer of mine. I prayed it this week. That God would do that here locally with us. But also beyond this area as well. I was just... Remembering uh, Adoniram Judson sent out right down the street, uh, the first American missionary sent overseas. Read the story, amazing story. Uh, pioneer work in Burma. They still use the Bible translation that he made back in the early 1800s. Um, and I was asking God, would there be even hundreds of Adoniram Judsons sent from Haverhill again? 
And that may sound arrogant, maybe. I hope not. It may sound ridiculous. And maybe it is. But it's in line with what the truth is here. It's in line with the heart of God. It's in line with God's purpose to shine the light to the Gentiles. That salvation might be brought to the ends of the earth. That's what God desires. He desires to shine His light. He desires work to be done. He desires to bring the gospel to this area and beyond. There's a lot of work to be done. Within five miles of our building here, there are 100,000 people. 100,000 people within five miles. Five miles is not a long distance. If you just draw a circle, 100,000 people. How many of those people know the Lord? Maybe 1,000? We don't know. Maybe 1,000? How many does that leave? You can say. What's the answer? How many does it leave? 99,000. That's a lot of people, isn't it? Sometimes people will say, you know, why are there so many churches in, in Haverhill in this area? There aren't that many churches, actually, when you look at the amount of people. So maybe a thousand of them know the Lord. Maybe a tenth of them have heard a clear gospel presentation. That's 90,000 left who have probably never met somebody who is a Christian or at least has had the boldness to tell them about Jesus. There's a lot of darkness around here, guys. There's a lot of darkness around us. There's a lot of opportunity around us. And we must understand that this mission that Paul had to shine the light in New Horizons is our mission as well. We are called to that. We are called to bring the light to this area. We are called to do all we can under the, under the sovereignty of God in the power of the Spirit. And we'll hopefully touch on that. We're called to do that in the, in the grace of God. But we're called to bring that light to this area. To bring the light of the Gospel. To share Christ. To shine for Him. And we're small. Maybe we can't shine to everybody, but we certainly can shine to all we can. And in partnership with others, other churches that are preaching Christ, to bring the Gospel. Because God has made His people a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And there's a lot of work in the world as well. We need to be aware of that. We need to partner with the church. Uh, John, we have some slides. If you jump ahead. I want just to inform you guys about some of the things going on in the earth. I want to encourage you guys with this as well, but inform you. And then we'll, we'll hopefully have some time to, to draw some more lessons from this section as well. Um, we live in an, a really amazing age in history. The gospel, the light of the gospel is going out to the world. Uh, there's a, an overhead on Bible translation status, John. Do you have that to show? This is Bible translations done over history from the, year, from the time of Christ till now. And these are uh, the different, different portions translated in the different languages to the, to the world. All right? There are many, many languages in the world. Uh, I think the 16,500 languages in the world or more. Uh, and this is the amount of Bible translations that have been done. Look at what goes on in the graph. I'm an engineer by training in my background, so pardon me if this doesn't help. But as time goes on on the bottom, this peaks up really quickly. And it's going on right now. There are Bibles being translated, uh, the Bible is being translated into multiple languages at an unprecedented rate. The light is going forth into the world, into all peoples. God wants to shine the light. He's put it in the heart of His people. And Christianity... Uh, biblical, gospel-centered Christianity is growing at an amazing rate in the world. The next 
chart shows what's going on. This is the growth rate of different uh, religions, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, all Christians, uh, just of all types, nominal as well, Hinduism, Islam, and uh, different denominations, and then evangelical, evangelical faith. And then what I mean by that is not evangelical politically necessarily or whatever the term you might understand it, but evangelical in gospel-centered, Bible-based churches that stick to the Bible. They're growing at an incredible rate throughout the earth, almost 5%, way faster than anything else in the world. There's a lot going on in China right now. We want to be aware of what's happening in China. And I could talk about many countries that, are, that God is shining the light. And I, and I share this so we're aware, so we can pray, and some of us perhaps to go, but also to be encouraged for our part of the mission here to see what he's doing elsewhere, to be encouraged. In China, in 1948, there were less than one million believers. You guys know that China fell under communism at that time. And, and uh, missionaries were kicked out, and they didn't get back in until the 60s, and they came back in and thinking the church maybe had been ex- extinguished by communism. But no, it hadn't. Right now, in 2008, there are upwards of 125 million believers in China. Most of the growth in the last 30 years. There are more followers of Christ in China than all of North America. More people born in China than all New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Philly, San Diego, Phoenix, Dallas, and El Paso, Denver, all put together every year. And there are over 12,000 new Chinese believers every year. But the work's not done. There are uh, 16,500 people groups. The next slide shows this. 16,500 people groups. And thank God, 9,700 of those people groups have been reached with the gospel. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that a large majority of those people have come to Christ, but there has been a gospel witness. There is a gospel witness there. There's still 6,800 unreached people groups in the world that have not had the light of the gospel really shine in any significant way to them. But God's at work. And lest we think that it's merely the West that's on the march, God is using people from all over the world. And in the next 15 to 20 years, in the the 1040 window, the area of the world where it's least reach, there uh, should be 10,000 missionaries going from Latin America, 50,000 from China, 30,000 from Korea, uh, 15,000 from Nigerians, 100,000 of contract laborers, from the Philippines who are believers going to these areas. There's a lot happening. Now, I don't know. The Lord said that the gospel was going to be preached to all nations. Then the end would come. Looks to me like it's happening. And God's invitation to us is to be part of what he's doing. Some of us may go. Most of us are going to stay. There's lots we can do here. There's lots of darkness. God wants to shine his light. He wants to use us. He wants to lead us. He wants to bring his light into dark places. He wants to expand into new horizons. And then my prayer is that we will be stirred up more and more to do these things, to follow in this mission, the same mission that that Paul and his team was on, we would see as our mission in our part of the story to play. There are some things to draw from this chapter, some ways we can learn how to go. And in, in a few minutes' time, somehow, I'm going to try to just touch on some of those things. Um, there's so much in this chapter, and I debated whether to read the whole thing. Uh, 
And I encourage you to go back and spend time reading through it, going through it, digging from it. I want us to learn. I want us to learn to emulate Paul and his team. Now, we're not going to be Paul. We don't have the calling. We don't have the authority that he did. But we do have the same mission. We're in the same story. I want us, as we go through Acts, to learn how to do this work. And so we see some key things here, and we've seen this before. These guys do this work not on their own. It isn't their idea. It's God who's at work. It's God who does it. God is the one who says, set apart for me. God the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. Then they go, it says they're sent by the Holy Spirit. When Paul encounters uh, Bar-Jesus, Elemis, the magician, he is filled with the Spirit and then says, you will be blind and unable to see for a time. At the end of, this, of the chapter, we see the disciples are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. One thing that we get from Acts, it's unmistakable unmistakable. We can't miss it. That vital Christianity is spirit-filled Christianity. That vital Christianity, alive Christianity, is spirit-filled Christianity. It's Christianity dependent on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And if we want to be part of fulfilling the mission and seeing the light shine, then we need to learn to be dependent on the Holy Spirit in the same way that they were. And the Spirit is at work. We have the Spirit in us. He's at work to do the same things. To neglect the Holy Spirit is to neglect being able to be the lights. To neglect the Holy Spirit, to neglect the third person of the Trinity is to drift from the second and the first as well. We cannot have binitarian Christianity. That is vital Christianity. And I want, as we go through this, I pray as we go through the the Acts series that we hear the call of God to pursue the ministry of the Spirit in and through our lives. To recognize our need for the Holy Spirit personally. To recognize our need for the Holy Spirit as a church. To recognize that we cannot do what He calls us to do. We cannot have the heart. We cannot have the understanding. We will not have the opportunities. We will not have the power and authority to bring light to people if we aren't constantly depending on the Holy Spirit and looking for the Holy Spirit. And He's eager. God wants to pour out His Spirit. We don't see in Acts God saying, well, you know, guys, I, you, know, you don't really need the Holy Spirit. You know, just, just do it, all right? Just, just, I gave you the message. The instructions are clear. Just do it. We don't see that. We see a dependence, a reliance, a, a moving of the Holy Spirit, a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. We are not to quench the Holy Spirit. We are not to resist the Holy Spirit. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We are to pursue the Holy Spirit. Listen to D.L. Moody. You guys may know D.L. Moody was... Uh, he's actually a Massachusetts boy. Um, God used him, and God worked in his life. He says this, I thought I had power. I had the largest congregations in Chicago, and there were many, con- con- many conversions. I was, in a sense, satisfied. But right along, those two godly women kept praying for me, and their earnest talk about anointing for special service set me to thinking. We have this to project, I think. It's earlier on. Sorry. So speaking of these two women who, who, had, who were praying for him for anointing, he says, I asked them to come and talk with me, and they poured out their hearts in prayer that I might receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. There came a great hunger into my soul. I did not know what it was. I began to cry out as I never did before. I really felt that I did not want to live if I could not have this power for service. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with His Spirit. Well, one day, 
in the city of New York. Oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you could give me all the world, it would be as a small dust of the balance. Neil Moody knew he needed the Holy Spirit to do the work he was called. And if you know the story of his life, God used him mightily to lead many to Christ. And he sought the filling of the Spirit, and God filled him, anointed him, and used him. And he saw a dramatic difference, not in his methods, not in what he said, but somehow as the Spirit used him, anointed him, he was more effective in his work as an evangelist. Oh, it would be a tragedy to go through Acts as a church and not get this. May we be characterized as a people who are desperate for the work of the Spirit, who are compelled by the call to shine the lights in dark places, and who say, Lord, I cannot do it on my own. I don't have the heart for it on my own. I, can't, I don't have the energy for it on my own. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the opportunity. I need you. Would you fill me with your spirit today? Would you use me? Would you teach me to listen and to walk? Would you meet with us as we gather together to refresh and to do this work? And would you use us to shine the light? This is the Father's heart. There's more that can be said about this chapter and I have to conclude. So much about learning how to share Christ. Paul tells the story of Christ and then invites the church into their part in the story and warns them to avoid being the bad guy in the story. Watch out, lest you become the scoffer in the story, the one that rejects the good news. That warning's for us. Watch, watch out, lest we become the scoffer in the story, the one that heard again and again and again and said, ah, fairy tales instead of being the blessed one in the story, says, you know, I'm the sinner that's described in the story, and I need a Savior. And I believe, and I receive that forgiveness. I receive Christ, and I want to follow Him. Look at how Paul preaches Christ and invites them to take their part in the story. Take a time to look through the chapter and watch the sovereignty of God. At some point in this series, I'm going to take probably a mini-series to talk about sovereignty and God's choosing and how that plays into all these things in Acts. It's an important part of what goes on. But we see a sovereign God who's behind the scenes doing these things and orchestrating these things. And we learn in the story that, as a matter of fact, he had it planned before time began that it would happen this way. A mystery for us, but a comfort for the believer and confidence for the believer to go knowing he's going to do things. He has things planned. If he hadn't planned things, we might as well not go because it's not going to happen. But he's planned much. We learned that in the story. If the banker come up as we conclude. So I encourage you to take time to read through Acts 13, to meditate on these things, and to hear the call of God, to be part of him shining the light in dark places, that we would rely on the Holy Spirit 
We would preach the good story of Christ and invite people in. You know, it's not hard to share Christ. Sometimes we think we have to be a theologian and get all the terms right. We have to understand sin and all that it means and understand the atonement. And that's a good thing to do. But you know what? All you have to do is tell the story. Tell the story. Christ came, lived a righteous life, died on the cross for sin, rose again, and invites us to the forgiveness and lordship under him that is ours for all who believe. You can tell the long story. You can tell the history of Israel. And we'll see later on, Paul tells the story differently when he goes to Gentiles in chapter 14. But that's what he does. He tells the story. We can all do that. Let's ask the Lord to use us. Let's pray as we finish. Lord, we thank you for the story here in Acts 13. We thank you for what you did with the Gentiles. We thank you for Paul and his ministry. We thank you for the groundbreaking work and, and the light being shown in dark places and shown so that we could benefit. Oh, God, thank you. Now, Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Inform us with the truth in this passage. And sovereignly direct us and use us to bring the light to dark places, we pray. In Christ's name.